Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is Episode 4, Arts Education, Learning, Celebrating, and Advocating, Act 1, recorded April 12th and 13th, 2017, at City College of New York, and on September 11th, 2017, at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. One size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 September 10th through 15th, 2017. This is National Arts Education Week. And Americans for the Arts is celebrating in a myriad of ways. I've gone to their conferences this year. In March, I participated in their Arts Advocacy Day in D.C. And if you haven't, please listen to my diary episode about that experience, which was amazing. Uh, yesterday, there was a kickoff, kickoff event at 92nd Street Y, or they are now called 92Y, and it was a kickoff event um, organized by the Americans for the Arts, and I spoke to Arts Education Program Manager Jeff Poulin afterwards. Take a listen. Hello, Jeff Poulin. Excellent. Um, hi, Jeff. Hey, Courtney. <laughs> How are you? Good. It's great to be here. Um, I am privileged to be here. Thank you so much for um, inviting me to be a part of this really cool event and this cool week. Oh, it's my pleasure. Arts Ed Week is really one of those things the whole field owns, so it's great to be surrounded by all of the Arts Ed fam around the country. Well, I think what's interesting is that um, while Arts Ed Week is for everyone, there's a one particular organization that I think is at the forefront of making sure that we're advocating for the arts, that we're talking about the arts, so I'm hoping that you can help everybody understand more about Americans for the Arts and its mission. Sure, Americans for the Arts is the nation's leading organization for the advancement of the arts and arts education. Um, We've been around since the 1960s with our first big advocacy effort to create the National Endowment for the Arts and to perpetuate federal funding and public investment at the state and local levels to ensure that every community is healthy and vibrant and equitable through the arts and that every child has um, a creative and um, artistic education. So really what we do is we work to inspire change um, at the federal, the state, and the local level to pursue policies that in arts education support equitable access because we know that is not the case at the current moment and we really must work on policy reform to make that vision uh, realized. 
So National Arts and Education Week is a time for us to come together and bring that message to the attention of everyone who needs to hear it. Great, so for those of us who don't know that there even is a National Arts Education Week, can you just give us a little history on that? Sure, so the week was actually passed by Congress in 2010 through House Resolution 275. And the fun story of it is actually that it originated with Broadway legend Carol Channing. And her, her and her husband loved arts education so much that they started a foundation and at the time were advocates themselves and contacted their representative in Congress, Representative Jackie Spear of San Francisco, and passed the legislation to mark the week that follows the second Sunday in September as National Arts Education Week. And why, why that week, do you know? I don't really know. Um, the, the jury's out whether it was a special day or not, but what we know is that it's a great opportunity because it's back to school for a lot of folks, um, and it's a time in the year to harness the opportunity to talk about the transformative power in the arts as a kind of preventative advocacy strategy, right? It's not during budget time, it's not during crunch time, but instead it's an opportunity to really bring that visibility and showcase the transformative power of the arts in our communities, in our schools, and in the lives of everyone. And what is your role? So your arts education program manager, what's your role? Yeah, I oversee all of our arts education programs from federal, state, and local policy analysis to training advocates at the grassroots and the grass tops level and working on our visibility campaigns, which includes National Arts and Education Week. And that um, encompasses everything from putting together toolkits for local organizations and advocates at the grassroots level to uh, host Arts Education Week events, putting together our social media campaigns. This year it's hashtag because of arts ed to allow people to share their stories and to work on our um, federal advocacy, including a petition to the current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, to encourage her to support arts education in federal policy. Um, first of all, I just want to thank you for that because I, anytime I see Betsy DeVos, I, I see red. So I think that it's very important that just because some, some of us may disagree with some of her policies that we are still advocating for um, all of the things that we think are important um, from the top levels down. Um, Absolutely. And, and she's a great example of, you know, where opportunity lies. Um, mm -hmm. She has been a... a fervent supporter of arts education um, through her philanthropy in um, Michigan as well as um, national philanthropy and really does, um, she's been on the record, especially during her confirmation hearings, as believing that the current federal law, the Every Student Succeeds Act, articulates great opportunities for arts education and that it should be the choice of the families and school districts at the local level to pursue those. So we would like her to issue as much guidance as possible to make sure that it is crystal clear about all of the opportunities for the arts to be a pathway for student success. That's really great, and I, I actually believe in that, which um, is, again, wonderful. Um, so, so why are we here? What are we celebrating today? Sure, today is the national kickoff for Arts Education Week, um, co-hosted by Americans for the Arts and the 92nd Street Y here in New York City. Um, and we have events all over the country. Yesterday, actually, we had a pre-kickoff um, at the High Museum in Atlanta, Georgia, with about 7,000 families that came through the doors to uh, talk about arts education um, in Atlanta. Um, and then we'll go to different cities like Portland, Oregon, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Huntsville, Alabama, Nashville, Tennessee, Lakeland, Florida, um, Salt Lake City, Utah, Washington, D.C. Um, and then there's about... 300 other celebrations that we see around the country, um, from local uh, student performances to um, visual art exhibitions, 
um, to gatherings and happy hours for teacher appreciation. It really runs the gamut, but the celebration is about the transformative power of the arts, how we know the arts transform teaching and learning in the school, in the community, and how ultimately all students and all people can benefit from learning in and through the arts. And so there was a, a, a very large um, array of different kinds of panelists um, in discussion today. And was there was some sort of theme that you felt like was um, trending within, we had Paul King, right, um, talking about the school sector, and more specifically, I'm assuming, you know, NYC or the New York City Department of Education and its system and how important the arts are. Um, and then we had Michelle Dorrance, who is a tap, amazing tap dancer. And then there were a couple others. I'm, I, I'm, I don't want to get their names incorrect. Yeah, so the panel really consisted of voices from the arts and culture, education, public um, and civic uh, leader, and business sector. Um, we had folks um, like Floyd Green from Aetna, one of the largest corporations in the United States, talking about how supporting arts education is good for workers and good for communities and good for business. Um, we did see Paul King talk about the transformation of the arts here in New York City and the opportunities for the arts in New York State. Um, and then, yeah, Michelle Dorrance was a great contributor as the keynote to talk about how tap dance actually has been an articulation of the racial history of the United States and how we can use the arts to rebel against the systems and creatively express ourselves in alignment with the visions of the framers of our country, um, the First Amendment rights and free speech and creative expression. And Michelle is a, a long friend of mine and as a tap dancer myself, I, I resonate with that message. But I think the biggest theme, and, and it came from a question that came from Twitter, actually, yeah. as the event was live streamed, mm -hmm. was about what is the future for arts education in America? And the big theme there emerged that it is the pathway forward. Not that it's the silver bullet, but it is mm -hmm. definitely a solution for a lot of the civic, community, um, and educational goals that we hope to obtain here in the United States. So... Um I'm just curious because it was a rousing event. There were some really like heavy hitters in the in the audience, let alone on stage. I'm just curious about you, you that you sort of named off that itinerary of where everything. I know that you're flying to many of those <laughs> places. What is it like to for you as you're getting ready? Like, what is your um, your strategy for getting ready for a, such a huge a, a week and with the myriad of events that are happening? For sure. So my job is really. I'm very lucky. I'm very very lucky in that. Uh, what I am deeply passionate about, what I am good at, and what I can get paid for can all be the same thing. Yeah. Uh, we Not many people find that opportunity. And so this week is really the manifestation. It takes a whole year of work to put together the week, but we know that it brings um, to light incredible success. Um, with the social media campaign, we see about 30 million tweets over the course of the week, which are, is an incredible way to um, see how many people engage with that social media campaign and 30 million people seeing message, positive messages about arts education is an incredible step forward. We also see people celebrating at the local level and what we know is that decisions about arts education happen at the school building and the local community level. So that local visibility to talk about the transformative power of the arts is everything. So yeah, I do fly around the country and I do work with people all over the place and my email inbox is a hot mess <laughs> leading up to the week itself. But ultimately what it is, is it is the manifestation of the role of Americans for the Arts to support the entire field, not to own the week, but to, to support teaching artists, to support um, 
certified educators to support parents and students and business leaders in communities across the country to talk about the value of arts education with those who need to hear it. That's really great. I mean, it, when you said, you know, to shine the light, to highlight the different kinds of stories and the people who are being impacted by being able to engage in the arts, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with this podcast in a, in a grassroots sort of way. And so to think about teaching artistry, the podcast, and then this, you know, national uh, social media campaign, but then the, beyond this particular week, what's happening year-round. So I'm just curious, you, you mentioned all the different levels, federal, state, and local levels of how America's for the Arts is supporting art, arts and arts education in other ways that the arts are can manifest and intersect with different um, areas of our lives. Um, I'm just curious, what are some uh, strategies or what are the specific ways that people who uh, want to get involved potentially either could be involved with the Americans for the Arts and or on their own? So what we talk about very often is this idea of the federal, state, local policy pipeline. So that in education, we know that there are federal laws that compel states to take action to design their education systems that ultimately are implemented at the local level. Teaching artists and other arts educators or arts education supporters can impact every single level. And in fact, teaching artists are some of the best advocates because they speak arts, they speak education, and they speak community. Mm. So sitting at that intersection, teaching artists can really be a voice to drive change in all of those different sectors. Now, finding that voice and implementing it at that federal, the state, and the local level is really, really important. So opportunities to get involved can really be at any of those levels, whether it's through uh, your local arts, what we call nexus organizations, or organizations that sit at that intersection between arts and arts education, or arts and education, to drive that message forward around local implementation with your state um, arts education alliance or statewide advocacy organization for arts and culture, or at the federal level. One of those opportunities is through the Arts Action Fund, which is our million member army coordinated through Americans for the Arts as a PAC. And some people have issues with PACs, but my argument is that if big oil and big pharma have PACs, arts and culture need it too. And the PAC itself, the Arts Action Fund, drives home a message to elect an arts-friendly Congress. And we've actually seen that happen. While the president wanted to eliminate funding for the National Endowment through the arts, through federal dollars, and wanted to eliminate funding through um, the Every Student Succeeds Act for a well-rounded education, Congress came back and said, no, sir. And they actually increased the money for the National Endowment for the Arts, which tells us that we've succeeded in that goal of electing an arts-friendly Congress. And as a member of the Arts Action Fund, you can be a voice, a citizen activist, to tell decision makers that the arts and arts education are important to you and that we must deliver on those promises made by such laws as the Every Student Succeeds Act to allocate the funds necessary to ensure that every child has an access to arts education and that our policies are implemented in an equitable fashion to help overcome those barriers of systemic um, racial injustice, um, systemic barriers for students who are learning English as a second language or students who are on IEPs. It is not okay for students because of where they live, what learning circumstances they need, or the color of their skin to be denied the opportunities for learning through the arts. Agreed. Um, well, I um, talk a lot about uh, Americans for the Arts because I did uh, go to the um, advocacy day, which was amazing. And so I feel like I had a little tiny part of the, of the whole thing around um, Congress really in the, the uh, give me the right terminology for the, for the committee. The appropriations. The appropriations committee. Um, so that, that feels really gratifying. And now this is another way for us to be able to get the word out and help people understand what, what they're, uh, 
their abilities are to be able to have a voice in how arts are being funded and manifesting throughout our country. And there's tons of information available on all of that on the American Street Arts website, through the Arts Action Fund, or otherwise through our partners that talk about the process. Sometimes it's understanding the process and the process alone. Other times it's understanding the power that you have as a citizen. In this country, we have the right to petition our government. We have the right to speak on our behalf. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Decision makers don't want to systemically remove the arts from education. They don't want to make you know communities void of arts and culture. Sometimes they just don't know what we need. So I look at it as our professional responsibility as arts educators and arts education professionals to tell them what we need, to share that story, to make that ask. And when we do that, we see successes. We saw that this advocacy day, and we've seen that in communities across the country. What it takes is us banding together to get our message out in front of the people that need to do it. We have an incredible power. We know the American public is behind us, where nine out of 10 Americans believe that the arts are part of a well-rounded education for every student. We know that the data is with us. There's copious amounts of data from civic engagement to science and math test scores to school attendance to the ability to vote as an adult are all impacted by engagement with the arts as a young person. So we have the formula. We just need to simply take the action. Wonderful. I'm going to make sure that, that uh, the, all that information is on the website when we post this. I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh, I wish we could talk more. Maybe we will be able to do so at another event, and we'll just keep, um, maybe I'll just follow you and stalk you. That sounds perfect. All right. Great. Thank you thank so you. much. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. As a way to honor National Arts Education Week, this episode is focused on the New York City Arts and Education Roundtable and its annual convening of arts educators called the Face-to-Face Conference. This past spring, it took place at City College on April 12th and 13th. I have been going to this conference since 2001, and when I was a grad student, uh, and I... It was my first time, and I talk a lot about that, but also I have been involved uh, since then in committees that help coordinate the conference that has over 500 participants. Over the years, I've attended the, the countless sense, uh, sessions, sat on numerous panels, and led many workshop sessions. It's a wonderful, concentrated time to learn, and I've had a lot of uh, aha moments at this conference, but it's also a great way to network with colleagues and contemporaries. So now, 16 years later, I'm director of education at the New Victory Theater, and I have started this podcast, this teaching artist podcast, so I thought that this could be an opportunity to capture some of the conversations. In this episode, you will hear two different conversations. So first up is Spencer Townley-Lott, who is a puppeteer and a teaching artist, and Christopher Ritz-Totten, who's the Education Programs Manager at the New Victory Theater, and I'm talking to them after they presented um, as part of a larger session, but we're representing the New Victory. And then I chat with uh, one of my favorite people, W.T. McRae, who's a wonderful clown and theater artist and a teaching artist. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, Spencer. Hey, Christopher. Hello. We're, we're, we're on. We are, yes. <laughs> 
Um, can you tell us what you just, uh, you were presenting, right? What were you just presenting? We were doing a snapshot of some of the curriculum from the um, DOE uh, Pre-K Create series. Yeah, and what is that? Uh, this, <laughs> what is Pre-K Create? Uh, uh, Christopher. It is a track uh, meant to help train uh, Pre-K educators um, on ways to implement different art forms uh, into their classrooms, specifically dance, music, uh, visual arts, and, of course, theater. So the New Victory has been working with the DOE to develop this, mm -hmm. and so we just did a, a little a little sample of some of our curriculum. So we were focusing on puppetry. Mm -hmm. We started out um, by reading a book that would be tied to their curriculum, Over in the Meadow, mm -hmm. Ezra Jeff Keats. Mm -hmm. yep. And uh, so we read that as a sample, Christopher read very well. As did you, Spencer. Oh, thank you. Shucks. Hats on the back. Uh, and so then we basically were doing a shadow puppet story whoosh. Mm -hmm. So we're taking the setting the characters, the soundscape, the thought tracking, anything that makes a good story whoosh and, uh, and uh, facilitating a shadow puppet version of that. And what do you feel like the participants got out of it? I thought that a lot of the participants, um, I saw lots of light bulbs going off, um, but then realizing that they could use everyday materials, like literally materials that you would just toss in the trash and think that they're not worth anything to create um, really meaningful um, stories. Uh, I was excited by their acknowledgement that they can um, really make this as, as simple or as complex as, as their students need it. Yeah. Um, so a number of the teachers were teaching also older populations mm -hmm. that, oh yeah, you know, we can bring in some of our literacy, some of our vocabulary, um, and some of our other like filmmaking artistry into the same shadow puppet exercise. Yeah, I, I, I thought the same. I felt like people were really immediately trying to figure out, okay, how can I use this? Or they were there were a lot of discoveries. Who was the woman who was the second uh, narrator? Jill. Jill. The she, the, like the whole time, everything was, <gasps> ooh, ah. You yeah. know, there was a lot of that for her, which, you know, as a storyteller, I'm sure she's, she was like a sponge just picking all of it up. Um, so, so this session aside, uh, we're at Face to Face, mm -hmm. New York City Arts and Education Roundtable, puts together this lovely conference, which I'll explain later. Um, what has your experience been? Have you been here to this conference This before? is my first time. What do you think so far? I am totally inspired by the amount of people here. Mm. Um, coming from the Midwest, where the idea of a teaching artist is kind of a new concept or a different concept, mm -hmm. um, to, be in, to be in this place surrounded by all these different foundations, organizations, theaters um, that are doing this kind of work and, and all pushing each other to do the best kind of work, totally, totally inspiring. Yeah. So did you go to a session uh, before? Ours? Not yet, but I'm going to try and make some tomorrow. Oh, that's excellent. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything specific that you're um, looking at? Yeah, let's see. There were a couple. I'm very, I was excited about this. Actually, this afternoon's one, the games with, mm -hmm. um, with our very own Renata yep. and uh, Roundabout's Paul Brewster. Um, tomorrow, um, oh, creative aging. So yes. my wife is a social worker and works with aging populations, which I find very intimidating. So this creative aging, um, and I think the tagline is, so you want to work with old people? I was like, oh, yes. But you also, does that tie back to the piece that you've made? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. which I was very moved by. Oh, thanks. It's all, it's an ongoing. So you yourself, is a, you're a puppeteer? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. Well, that's good. And, and, yeah, and, so, so I'm interested else? in that. Yeah. Um, what else? I, I find musical theater intimidating. 
but I'd love to be able to facilitate it better. So I may head cool. up to the musical theater. Now. So yeah, so I think that's a really interesting point that you're making that you know this is uh, what's lovely about this conference is that it is interdisciplinary. So as a puppeteer or a theater maker or a divisor, you actually have opportunities to learn other art forms or other uh, approaches to work, either working with different populations than you currently work with or yeah. whatnot. Why teaching artistry? As you know, this is oh. a podcast called Teaching I know, Artistry. I know, I'm a big fan. So, and you're a teaching artist. I am. Why teaching artistry? Why or And or, slash parentheses. Yeah. What, what is teaching artistry? So I'll do, the, I'll do my why first. Okay. Um, for me, teaching artistry is a way to kind of constantly be reminded of why I'm an artist and why I love my art form. Mm -hmm. uh, it's easy to get, uh, to get caught up in the freelance hustle and to get jaded or burnt out um, by, by trying to make it as an artist, but every time you walk into a second grade classroom and you can introduce a group of second graders to the thing that you love most, and you see that kid say, oh, I didn't even know this, this was a thing. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is that's the fuel, that's the Gatorade that keeps my artistry outside of the classroom going. So I find it's a really healthy balance. That's great. Um, so that's like my why. Um, and, then the, and then the what is a teaching artist? Yeah. Uh, a, a teaching artist is someone who uses their skills as an artist um, to come into a, a to come into a classroom and um, mm, I've never named this before. Teaching artist is someone who is, is does both is is both a practicing artist and has the capabilities to come into a classroom and use their artistry to teach. Great, yeah. Spencer. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Christopher, yes. did you go to a session this morning? I did. What did you go to? Um, I went to a session called Ableism and the Arts, mm -hmm. which I found very intriguing because I don't think I've ever heard that word in my life, ableism. Um, and if you don't know what that is, ableism is uh, the sort of, um, uh, the intrinsic privilege that comes with being an, uh, a totally able-bodied person, right? And not being sensitive to the needs of those that um, maybe are not. Um, and in this particular session, we focused on uh, populations that were on the spectrum mm -hmm. and populations that maybe had physical um, disabilities or physical uh, developmental differences. Mm -hmm. It was really, really uh, enlightening. Yeah, and what, what was one specific takeaway that you had? Um, one specific takeaway that I had was that I, I wonder, maybe it's an I wonder, uh, I wonder how, uh, we, how, how we as teaching artists, how we as people who create lesson plans um, that are implemented in classrooms uh, with very, very diverse populations, how we make a lesson plan that doesn't necessarily have modifications um, uh, as addendums to uh, the, the core thing that we create, mm -hmm. but that the lesson plan is already completely intrinsically inclusive. How do we do that? And I think that there's something really cool and magical about the process that could lead us there. That's great. That's a that's a big question because that is something that we actually do currently, right? We have a sort of set core content, and then we do these modifications where we list out like if 
if you're working with younger kids, go in this direction, or if, you know, um, so naming the different kinds of populations as opposed to it being inside of the work. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean? Yeah, and one of the examples that they gave, or one of the exercises we did was, um, a, uh, it was like a, a sensory exercise. So a, a photo was shown mm -hmm. uh, of a desert island. And so when there was a soundscape that was played, there were waves crashing. And then the facilitators brought around um, orange peels for us to smell. Mm -hmm. And I sort of thought, wow, a sensory experience does not just have to be for those on the spectrum or those that um, may have developmental challenges. It could be for all of us. Right. How, how amazing to uh, make the theatrical experience even more sort of immersive. Mm -hmm. I don't want to overuse that word, but more immersive than to sort of add something like that into the lesson. Or I don't know if it's immersive or is it 360? I don't, I don't know. It's almost like it's experiential. Experiential. It's, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, it's like a 4D um, Yeah, and I think that may <laughs> like a 4D experience. I like that. that. So that's a really big and interesting question as we move forward to create work. Uh, because we all work for the same organization, which yes. we know what it is. Okay. But in general, like, you know, the, that is what I like about what you're talking about is um, by going to a conference like this, by working or, or being in a session with people who don't work in our organization, as great as we think we are, there's still more to learn, right? And then there, that is what brings up questions, makes us think differently, and, and then uh, find ways to actually, if it makes sense, to bring back to our organizations and our personal work, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Excellent. Um, so, uh, to, again, to be transparent, yes. Christopher Fritzton, yes. <laughs> you are the the creative content manager for Teaching RSG. I am. Um, but I'm going to ask you this question too, even okay. though we've had this, these questions, these conversations, very often. Yes. Um, so, why teaching RSG? Uh, um, because because teaching artistry. No. Um, why teaching artistry? Because teaching artistry is about experiential learning, um, and going back to my childhood, I wish that I had had teaching artists come into every single one of my classrooms, because mm. I never understood math, I never understood algebra, I never really understood biology and chemistry, but I would have understood it if it had been theatricalized, or if there was some sort of creative element mm. to sort of bring it off of the page and sort of like put it in my body mm. or sort of you know put it uh, physicalize it in mm -hmm. some way or make me feel what I was learning and not just sort of read what I was learning so teaching artistry because um, it combines creative elements of theater with um, with with learning great well thank you to you both absolutely I made you late for your next session I'm so sorry not at all um, I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Have a great rest of your conference. Oh. As, you, as you too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Hey, Courtney, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm well. So we're at face to face. Things are taking a minute. Uh, what sessions have you gone to? I went to a session this morning that was about uh, classroom management strategies, and then I went to a session that was about drama therapy applications in the classroom. Great. And of the two, uh, which one do you feel like had more uh, specific impacts on the work that you're already doing? 
Hmm, that's an interesting question. I think the first session had a lot of impact on me, though it may not have been the impact I was expecting. Yeah, I definitely walked out recognizing that uh, I have a sort of foundational uh, belief that is counter to the very phrase classroom management. And, and just like listening to the, this person was offering three separate approaches, like a, sort of like these are three schools of thinking of classroom management that I recognized that at the, the end game of all of it was corrective. Like that there's a way in which there was still a very clear like right behavior, wrong behavior. Um, and, and that for me, I was recognizing like a lot of the students I work with would see right through the strategy because they're so masterful at like reading tone and intent. Um, and so I was like, I was like, oh yeah, if I said that to like my high school kids, it'd be over, like it'd just be on. Uh, so it's interesting, like, recognizing that maybe my way of thinking as a teaching artist is counter to the very idea that my students need to be managed. Well, well then that begs the question, why did you go to the session in the first place? Well, I certainly don't know everything, and I definitely like to hear my colleagues in the field offer ideas, even if, even if what they do is form counter ideas and me more tightly that it's still really great to hear what people are thinking and how people are thinking and what strategies are are being employed and so I, I think that I have a I have a lot of challenges myself with classroom management um, because I, I think that the work in, in and of itself is interesting to the group but there are ways to continue to to use the activities or transitions or as a way to quote unquote manage, or I like to think of it as blocking, <laughs> essentially. Like, um, but the idea of, it, and it may be, it, it may be the type of artists that we are. I don't know what kind of artist potentially is personalizing, facilitating, but in theater, in devising, and clowning, sort of more performative work we're not asking kids to be quiet, right? We're not asking them, we need them to hear the direction, sure. Right. But it's really, we're setting them off to like create something and that there needs to be, you know, you need to get on your feet, you need to do all these things, there needs to be parameters, maybe. But, I, yeah, I think that the way that we, because I know you pretty well, the way that we've talked <laughs> um, a lot about that is less um, corrective behavior Right. And that, that can look a, a myriad of ways. Here's this way. <laughs> and, you know, in order to hear each other or be supportive of each other, we're not going to talk over each other. Or, or you right, know, like I mean, it's about setting up the norms a little bit as opposed to, I, again, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I, style, it's interesting because I was also, like, in the shower this morning. I was thinking about, uh, do we habitually set the bar too low like are we are we watering content more and more consistently with this sort of assumption like especially as teaching artists who sort of are like <laughs> arts inoculation right we're like there for 45 minutes there's a little arts piece uh, you know I think often the the 
impulse is to go really simple. Like to to like strip it down to like just one easy, highly successful activity. And I think that I mean one of my firm beliefs is that if the content is really engaging, you don't need to ask kids to like behave or sit down or participate in a more particular way. Because the the activity the like desire to succeed pulls all of that into alignment much more easily. That often I sort of feel like when I'm experienced students students as uh, dissentive or challenging, that often it's because they're not interested yet. We've talked about this very thing. Like I, I recognize as a teacher, and it's like, oh shit, I haven't recruited these people to the task I'm offering. You know, like if they were really stoked on devising a piece of theater about their neighborhood, like any energy coming towards us would be malleable and shapeable and easy. But actually, that's not. That's not what's happening. <laughs> right. You know, and it's uh, challenging as an artist and a teacher and somebody that's like passionate about the work I've been doing and has been doing the work for a long time. I mean, I'm old and salty. You know, but like uh, uh, to then say, wow, maybe what I'm offering just isn't actually interesting to these, this group. Um, and sometimes I'm like, wow, I don't know if I have the skills. I don't know if I have the skills. I know conferences are long. I'm so, I've been so hot all day. <laughs> and I'm just like. <laughs> just yawning right in my face. I'm so sorry. I was so interested in what you are talking about. But also, what were you like, though? Oh, like, I can't help myself anymore. I know, Ben's gonna yeah. love this. It's, Ben's gonna hear it. Don't worry. <laughs> well, while you were talking, I was also thinking, like, oh, I think, like, asking more questions about, like, your. Because this is not the first time you've been to this conference, right? No. You've been here multiple times, and you've gone to other conferences. Yeah, we've conferenced. We've conferenced together. Bit, we're often yeah. conference mates. I think we're going to conference again. Are we? I'm going to AATE. You are? I am. Oh, I'm not going to that. Oh. But, I, but my sister is Yay. in America. So Great. We'll conference with someone. We'll conference again. Uh, but we will conference again. I mean, I'll admit, I, there's a lot of side eye when I conference. Why? What do you mean? From you? I think so. From I think you I, or to you? From me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I get really eye-rolly. I also have a terrible, like, my thinking face is not that you can relate to this, right? We both have, like, some rough thinking faces. I think, I think the Scowl at the big ideas. And I, or, you know, just trying to understand. Wait, but it's a scowl, like, it's, yeah, I have a scowly a, thinking yeah. face. People are like, why are you frowning at me? I'm like, I'm not. I'm thinking about you. So just to get in a, in a, in a snapshot, if you will, at hmm. some point we'll talk in, in more in depth. But uh, how long have you been a teacher now? What is your main art form? What uh, what kinds of like big juicy questions are you asking about your practice? How long have I been a teaching artist? Uh, I taught my first class. It was a dance class when I was 16 years old. I've been a teaching artist for 
20, almost 22 years. Um, told you I was a little insulted. My primary art form, movement theater slash device theater, original work mostly. And my interest in my practice, is that the third question? Big juicy questions, yeah. I mean, one of them is this one, like, is, are, are we dithering the content too much? You know, like, how do I raise the bar? I teach a lot of circus, and circus is very, like, organizing in terms of how teaching works for me, because it's sort of, it's its own recruitment vehicle. Like, almost never do I walk in a space and be like, I'm here to teach circus, and kids are like, I don't want to do that. Because that almost never happens, right? Um, and so, and it's really hard. Like the truth of the matter is, is that juggling three objects is hard. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be cool to watch. And so learning, like thinking about ways to sort of always offer that level of complexity in the work that we're offering and like bring the level of skill so that students can instantaneously tell that what you're, what you're doing is high level skill and that you are going to open a door for that room for them um, in some way create a space in which they can also aspire to a high level skill. My, my other question is because I'm doing more conservatory style training and work with students long term um, and I have a lot of questions around uh, self-worth and how how humans in, in a society that is so deep in specialization equate self-worth with their doodles of effort or their ability to achieve, uh, both in myself and in my students, I can recognize that sometimes the hurdle of, of getting better is like being able to just hear a deficit or a challenge or an observation about your work. Like Liz Lerman writes so eloquently about this. Like it's painful, and part of that pain, I think, is like the way that we equate our value as a human as in terms of our value in a capitalist machine or our value in an artistic competitive market or, you know, um, and I recognize when I'm training especially aspiring artists, young ones, that like when I say your diction is not working, they hear and I can see it, you're not worthy of love or like you're not good enough. And so I'll recognize that there's like a ceiling to the growth possible. Not because of what I'm able to, you know, help them shape, but because like they're not actually capable of like hearing the feedback or working or even like, you know, like they can't even engage their practice theory because to do so would be to admit this deficit. And to admit this deficit is actually to like give away some amount of self-worth. Which well, I is, mean, I mean, especially now, Daniel, like the whole idea of like social media being the primary form of, of connecting others, and that comments can be, you know, positive or negative, or or there's this whole thing like if you don't get a hundred likes on a on an Instagram photo, you delete it because you're a failure. Not good right? Sure. Failure. That's crazy famous. So so then that that sort of world, that outside world manifesting itself. And I was just thinking about this. Um, I'm in the middle of writing a blog about one of our, our 
during these kinds of programs and speaking of social media. <laughs> um, and the last sort of thing we're talking about, my the goal is to talk about really succinctly the program, but also like how working with intensity in, in schools that are very under resourced, uh, how it's changed our practice or impacted our practice. Mm-hmm. And by the time I finally like found it, it was the last bullet point, which is about love and about like how can love be quantified or can kids need for love be quantified is where I'm at right now. And so like there's this this like uh, I, I don't know, inside of what you just said about getting feedback and that, that, that hearing negative feedback makes me feel like I'm now worthless. Yeah. Oh, how do we build up? Because this is also about like the bounce back, right? The, the idea of you know, if you make a mistake, it's not over. How do you bounce back from that and learn from that, move forward from that, and and realize that actually by by acknowledging that I made a mistake and figuring out you know how to adjust it, either through feedback or me looking at it or, or me practicing or whatever it is, that that makes me take a step forward beyond that. Right. And therefore, right. Well, I am worthy. That's and it. And I am. It's worth it. I'm worth it. Which is is tied up in like practice theory and future mindedness, and you know, I mean, it's these are these are not new concepts, and recognizing deficits are also not new concepts. I do think that that like the arts is starting to get better about talking about the value of what we do, particularly arts educators, and I think this is one of the things that like consistently really bugs me is that like this is one of the things the arts can teach you. Um, is how to like fail safely or how to like rebound from your failures. Um, those are you asked the big juicy ones. Those are the ones I I got. Um, (laughs) So I have I've been um, I've interviewed a bunch of people. Uh, Don't ask them all the same questions except for one. You're a teacher. Like every awkward Christmas party conversation I've ever ah, had. So I'm not asking for the elevator. <laughs> what is a teaching artist? Yeah, I mean, I think it, for me it is like equal parts uh, traditional mentorship model, like continuing a tradition where artists teach artists uh, and like another part community activist through radical self-acceptance and radical self-expression. Um, so for me, I sort of think part of it I'm engaged in just the practice of practice. So as an artist, there's a dialogue between my making and my training of others and my training of self and my making and my training of others and my training of self. And I find myself, you know, pulling through a technique that I'm teaching into my work and being like, yeah, that really does help. I'm glad we're thinking about it. Uh, and then being able to reflect to my students, like, I was working in the studio with my team and I learned this amazing thing. Let's see if it helps you guys. You know, there's sort of a, 
dialogue there, but also just that uh, I think the structures are so tight around young people's education. Uh, and because they're so tight, the action of providing creative, self-reflective self space in schools is an act of revolution. And like it starts when I wear nail polish into a school and it ends when like they create something that wasn't there before. And it res I, I believe it resonates. I choose to believe that. That's a very self-affirming belief. But I believe my work does real good things for the universe. I believe it does. And, uh, you know, we don't always get to see it immediately. But. No, the payoffs are almost not ever ours. It's a service profession that way. You talked about a, a very early in your career working in the Bronx, teaching, and then like years later seeing what you've done. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I worked, so my first, like, professional jobs in New York City schools were for Bronx Arts Ensemble, uh, and it was all, like, the Pell Grants that were coming down out of the NEA that were all focused on what they called at-risk youth at the time, <laughs> phrases we don't use anymore, um, and I didn't, you know, I, I basically had a performing partner say like oh do you want to go teach theater games to some kids in the Bronx I'll pay you and I was like yeah that sounds great it was certainly not that simple uh, and I was you know mostly in classrooms with like Teach for America teachers who also had almost zero skills you know like they were they were first-year teachers or first-year teaching artists with students that were labeled at risk that were lumped together you know like it was it was like not ideal petri dishes and I was supposed to be doing uh, tying into their like social studies curriculum and building plays about their neighborhood for fifth graders. And it was like one of the hardest, most eye-opening times of my life. That first year, I worked with all probably six classes a day of fifth graders for f like five days a week. They would just they had so many residencies, and that was what I did. And I cried all the time. And I was like, this is a waste of everybody's time. I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> They hate me. I hate this. Um, and then seven years later, I was working for the music. Uh, Heidi and I went to the Bronx Center for Science and Math High School, and we taught an ocho workshop. It was like a, a tango workshop for an aerial tango show. We had a really great workshop, and after the workshop, this senior, this girl, came up and said, Is your last name McClure? And I said, yes. <laughs> Did we know each other? And she said, yeah, you were my drama teacher in fifth grade. And um, I stuck with drama, and I still did it, and I got a drama scholarship, and I'm going to, to Boston Conservatory next year for theater on a free ride. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. She's like, I just wanted to say thank you. That <laughs> was very affirming moment. Yeah, we don't all get that moment, but, like... No, but I think we, I mean, you know, I mean, I think that ultimately we're all doing it because like, there was a teaching artist or a, an equivalent in our history that did that for us. 
I grew up in New Mexico, and there was this man who was a storyteller, and he, his focus was the stories, the historical stories of Lincoln County, New Mexico, which is where, like, Billy the Kid and, and, um, and the Tunstalls and the McCoys, like, all these, like, really amazing pieces of Western history happened, and he used to come to our school and perform like essentially a school show of like the stories of Lincoln County, New Mexico. And it was absolutely like where I developed my desire to be an actor so deeply. I was like, I want to be him. And then I was him for a long time. I toured schools, performing in schools and like doing that. And my senior thesis in conservatory was a Billy the Kid one man show. And you know, like the, we all sort of like know inherently that that could happen. Yeah. You just don't always get to like see the thread. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Thank you. I love talking to you. I love talking it's to you. you. Um, I like that it's being recorded as well. And they were at a conference. And conference. Thank you for listening to episode four of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. Arts education, learning, celebrating, and advocating. Join us next time for Act Two. Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Ritz Totten is the creative content manager. John o. Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us on the internet at www.teachingartistry.org. Follow us on Twitter at TA underscore artistry. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.